With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to DeluxeEditionNetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Spies. They are good for extracting information. Sometimes they are hired to be able to see things that you cannot see. But what if they exist in corporate America? What if your job hired a spy to spy on you or their competitor? Do they really exist? Join me as I talk to former actor, author, and former corporate spy, Robert Kerbet, on this extraordinary people edition of True Crime and Authors. Welcome to True Crime and Authors Podcast, where we bring two passions together. The show that gives new meaning to the old adage, truth is stranger than fiction. Here's your host, David McClam. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of True Crime and Authors. Of course, I am your man, David McClam. Hey, if you guys haven't already, make sure you follow us on all of our social medias. One link to a link tree gets you every place you need to go in the show notes. All right, if you guys are paying attention, you know our new segment has started with Extraordinary People. So here is another episode of that. And boy, do I have one for you today. So let me introduce our guest. He has a true crime memoir called Roos, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. And it is his story of how a wannabe actor became the world's greatest corporate spy. Frank Abinelli, author of Catch Me If You Can, said that Kerbeck has mastered the art of social engineering or what he calls rusing and taking it to a whole new level. While Shondaland, producer of the Netflix series Inventing Anna, described Ruse as almost too good to be true with no shortage of wild stories. Kerbeck's previous book, Malibu Burning, the real story behind L.A.'s most devastating wildfire, won him a 2021 SoCal Journalism Award, the 2020 Ippy Award, and the 2020 Best of L.A. Award. His writing has appeared in numerous publications, including the Los Angeles Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Los Angeles Magazine, and Lithup's Crime Reads. He is the author of Ruse, Lying, the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. Please welcome Robert Kerbeck. Robert, thank you for joining today. 
Oh, David, thank you for having me. I'm a little jealous, though, because I wish I had a nickname like David the Man McClam. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a good nickname. <laughs> well, take it from me, from everything I just read, you are truly the man in a lot of areas. Yeah, I've had a crazy, it's a crazy story. I've had a crazy life. You know, I didn't go to high school or college, uh, you know, studying how to become a corporate spy. Let me just say that. (laughs) So let's kick this off because I'm I'm fascinated on a lot of these. I can't wait to dive into your book uh, because I've read a lot of reviews on it. I've read the synopsis. Uh, It's going to be a crazy ride. But you say how a wannabe actor actually turned into a corporate spy. Let's talk about that. Why were you a wannabe actor? What happened to your acting career? Yeah, so, you know, I I, uh, fell in love uh, with acting in college. I was paying my way through college. I'm from Philadelphia and, um, you know, uh, wanted to meet women. And uh, somebody said to me, the theater is a great place to meet women. And, of course, he was right. so I started doing plays and, and in, not only did I fall in love with a woman in the theater, I fell in love with the theater and I fell in love with acting. And so when I graduated, I was going to work for my family, uh, had a car dealership. Uh, the Kerbeck name is very famous in the Philadelphia area. My great grandfather sold horse carriages before cars were invented. Then he switched over to become a car dealer. My grandfather took over that dealership. My father took over that dealership and I was supposed to take over that dealership. But uh, when I graduated college, I worked briefly for my father and it just didn't feel right for me. The trickery of car sales, which of course, as we're going to talk about, becomes pretty ironic uh, that I didn't want to do car sales. And then of course, I stumble into a career as a corporate spy. But when I moved to New York um, to finally try to become an actor, actors need uh, survival jobs, right? Um, And I didn't have kind of the patience to be a waiter. I wasn't a late night guy. So bartending was out. And a buddy of mine, one day mentioned this mysterious job and then shut up right away as if he knew he had been told not to talk about it and he had said something he wasn't supposed to say. And I said, hey, dude, whoa, 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 you got to help me out. I'm broke. I need a job. And so he very reluctantly got me an interview. I went up to the Upper East Side and your audience, you know, if they don't know, the Upper East Side is kind of the ritzy old money area of Manhattan. I was living in Hell's Kitchen uh, in a cave with two other guys. And so I go to this ritzy uh, doorman building. I take the elevator up to the penthouse. This woman, you know, ushers me in the most luxurious apartment I've ever seen. So I knew right away, whatever her business was, it was lucrative, but I still had no idea what it was. We have this very strange interview. She never tells me anything about the job. She sends me on my way. And my buddy calls and says, you're hired, but don't get too excited because no one is able to do this job. And the next day I went out and I began my training, my apprenticeship as a corporate spy. And of course, when I went out for the very beginning, I still had no idea what the job was. I thought we were selling magazine subscriptions or selling something. (laughs) So... You go from acting overnight to becoming now you're going to be training for a corporate spy. When you first got to your training ground, what was your first thought? Well, I go out to Brooklyn and, you know, this is, you know, Brooklyn back in the 90s, uh, you know, which was, you know, rough. Uh, It's not the Brooklyn of today where the only thing you find in Brooklyn are, you know, hipsters with beards and coffee shops. Right. This was not that Brooklyn. So I go out there. It's pretty rough. I walk up the fourth fourth floor walk up. People are screaming behind doors. You know, I'm imagining, you know, drug deals and I don't know what the hell's going on. But um, I knock on this door and this beautiful woman opens the door. She says, come on in. You'll work in my bedroom. I still have no idea what's going on, Um, but I was single. So I went with it. 
I go into this bedroom and she's got a futon on the ground and a desk. And she says, sit down at the desk. And she begins to explain to me that what we do is we use our acting skills, uh, voices, accents, we create stories, we create personas, and we call up corporations and we trick people into telling us secrets that they should never, ever in a million years tell us. And that was my first day as a corporate spy. And of course, I had no idea such a thing existed, right? We all know the Russians spy on the Chinese, the Chinese spy on us. But most people, like me, have no idea that corporations are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year to spy on each other. So now that we've covered, because you covered my, my next question, which is basically what a corporate spy does. So are there actually corporations that is calling people up and saying, hey, we know something's going on. Can you spy on here? Or how do you actually get the jobs that you get? Yeah, great question, right? There's no, you know, we weren't advertising our, you know, unethical, potentially illegal services as corporate spies. Generally, what corporations do is uh, they all hire spies, but they're never, ever going to tell you they hire spies. And so they want to have plausible deniability so they don't get caught. So what they do is they hire spies through an intermediary. So oftentimes the spies are hired from a consulting firm that is hired by the corporation. So the consulting firm hires the spies or an executive recruiting firm. All major corporations now, most of their mid-level and senior level hiring is done by executive recruiting firms, uh, also known as executive search firms, uh, commonly referred to as headhunters. Um, so all corporations hire headhunting firms. The headhunting firms hire spies. And what they do, of course, they know what the corporations are looking for, the type of intelligence, secrets. And, um, you know, we get a, a laundry list of everything that a corporation wants to know about their rivals, you know, who their top people are, uh, what their products in the pipeline are, what their plans are. Are they opening new offices? Are they closing offices? Are they hiring people? Are they firing people? You know, when is a certain product going to be released? How are they going to that product, anything and everything that a rival would want to know so that they could, you know, have some sort of competitive advantage. You think of like a football team, right? Imagine if you could get the playbook on your competitor three or four days before the big game, right? That would be a pretty big deal. And as I recall, I think the New England Patriots did exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> Man, the New England Patriots has so, has so many gates in them. You know, we have, you know, ball gate and inflate gate. Inflate right? gate, that's what, yeah. <laughs> okay, so just to kind of give ours a little bit, uh, Apple is a very secretive company, right? So when, when they go to drop product, you never hear about it. They never flaunt it. So would somebody say like a competitor hire you and say, hey, I want to know what the newest iPhone is going to actually be. They would hire somebody like you to see if you can get that information. Correct. And think about how valuable that information would be. You know, I always use the example. Imagine if you knew about the iPad in the very early days of the iPad, before the iPad is released. And imagine if you knew the names of the designers that were on that team, the top three or four designers. And imagine if you could contact one of those desires, designers and poach them, steal them from Apple and bring them to your firm. And they're going to bring their talent and theoretically those secrets. Imagine how much money that would be worth. And that's why Apple is one of the most secretive firms in the world. And Steve Jobs was legendary. Um, he would tell his employees, don't talk about anything. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell your wives. Don't tell your husbands. Don't tell anybody anything about what you do. And if you do, you're not just going to be fired. We're going to sue you. We're going to prosecute you. 
So he really put the fear of God into his employees so that they knew to never talk about anything. Most firms aren't like that. And so most firms, you can find people that are all too willing uh, to uh, say things that they shouldn't say. And in the beginning, when we were doing our spying, we would actually go in person and we would go to events. We'd go to a bar. We'd go to a sporting event where we knew a certain company was there or had a box or whatever. But we quickly learned that we actually got more private information, more secrets over the telephone using the anonymity of a phone call where we would be pretending to be an executive in some other office that they knew of, but they had never spoken to, but they knew this is a senior executive, this person's with the firm, and boy, if they're in trouble, if they need something, it's gotta be legit. You know, we would do accents, you know, this is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt, Germany. We have the European Union regulators here and we need some information from the states. And people would be, oh, hey, Gerhard, what the heck? Right, because most corporations now, they have offices all over the world. They have offices in London and in Dublin and in Frankfurt and in Moscow and in Charlotte and San Antonio and you know everywhere, right? So you could be from any office. People most likely don't know you, but they know of you. And people in corporate America, corporate culture are taught what? To be a good teammate. And so what do they do? They spill the beans without verifying that you are who you say you are and tell you things that in a million years they should never, ever tell you. How do they find you? So these headhunters who come for you, is there like a secretive list of who the spies are? Or how do they know how to get a hold of you guys to hire you? You know, uh, the woman who had the, the spy firm that, that you know, I started with and trained with, and then eventually I went on my own, and then eventually I, I started my own spy firm, you know, she had some clients. And then what would happen is over time, People would know about us and they would learn about us. And then when I went out on my own and, and my former boss sort of, you know, left the spy business, she would recommend people to me, you know, um, and, and, you know, it, it always amazed me. I mean, I never obviously advertised a day in my life and I always had more work than I could handle. People begged me to work for them. The largest corporations in the world were throwing money at me at one point, you know, when I started the job. And remember, it was just a survival job for an actor. And I was a working actor, you know. Um, you know, you read some of the stuff. I mean, I, you know, did over 50 major TV shows. I killed George Clooney on a show so he could go on the ER. You know, I worked with Paul Newman and, you know, had all kinds of encounters with uh, O.J. Simpson the week before he became the world's most famous murderer. And one of my favorite things about Ruse the book is that it's kind of two books. One book is the corporate spying book and the other book is the Hollywood tell-all book. And because I was a working actor and I was working with super famous people, Kevin Spacey hit on me, Yoko Ono hung up on me, you know, uh, there are tales of Madonna in the book and all, you know. So you got one chapter where it's like crazy Hollywood encounters um, and then the next chapter there's crazy spying encounters, you know. So it's kind of two books in one, um, which is something I think is a lot of fun for readers. So other than what you've mentioned about the competitive edge, why is secret corporate information so valuable? Well, look, you know, we, we, we talked a little bit about football, right? And we all know sports, incredibly competitive, right? To win the Super Bowl, to win the NBA championship, to win a tennis tournament, whatever. It's incredibly competitive. These people, these athletes devote their lives. Their coaches devote their lives uh, sometimes to, to, you know, the detriment of their personal lives, but they devote their lives to winning, right? Corporate America is no different. It's exactly the same. You know, if you're the CEO of a corporation, you're making billions of dollars. You are looking at your stock price 
every second of every day. You're worried about your revenue every second of every day, your bottom line, your expenses. You know, that's just your job. And that's for all senior executives, right? That's, that's, and so it gets incredibly competitive. And so if you can hire a spy and let's say you're number five in your marketplace or number seven in your marketplace or number 11 or number 32, and you can hire a spy and find out the playbook on your top five or six competitors, and you can learn some secrets, you can learn some pricing, you can learn about a new product, you can steal their top people because now you've identified who the rock stars are, right? And that's something, again, your listeners may not be aware. Every corporation ranks their internal employees. They have a system for ranking their people. We would learn what the system was so we could tell you who the top people were at your rivals. Because if you're interviewing people, and they come in and they meet you in an interview, everyone's going to tell you that they're number one in their team or number two on their sales desk or they're the top banker or the top designer. They're all going to say that. But we would find the metrics that proved it, right? So that when you were recruiting to steal somebody away from your top rival, you were getting the best person or the second best person, right? And you think about how valuable that is for your company and how detrimental it is to your rival, Right. You know, imagine we see it in sports all the time. You know, a free agent leaves one team. You know, Tom Brady leaves the New England Patriots. They go downhill. He goes to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They win the Super Bowl. Right. It's the same thing in corporate America. And it's just as competitive, if not more competitive. They're willing to do anything and everything to get an edge on their rivals. So who do you think calls in for the spot? Is it somebody like at the very top of the, of the executive branch of the corporation? So does all the executive branch know that the spy has been hired or is it secret for some people? Generally, it's authorized by someone who is extremely high up. I mean, I'm here to tell you, even though, you know, most times corporations are hiring me through an intermediary, many times I presented my extracted data directly to individuals, senior executives, two of whom today are one step from being the CEOs of two of the largest publicly traded companies in the world. And I personally presented them my uh, spying intel. I personally handed handed it to them. So I know for a fact that um, individuals that we see on CNBC uh, talking about corporate ethics and corporate culture, they're authorizing spying and desperate for the intelligence that spies obtain. So doing this, I'm sure you had to breach maybe some securities or getting the things that nobody else could have got into. Did it ever get you arrested? Ah, well, you have to read the book. (laughs) 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 The short answer is uh, damn close. Uh, Yeah, at one point. At one point, I was being hunted uh, by, um, I can't say every agency in the world, but most of them. So interesting question for those of us, you know, I'm in the tech field. I, uh, I, I use a lot of tech. Uh, I saw these questions. So I got to ask you this, being that you are who you are. So in your opinion, what is the weakest link in cybersecurity? Well, it's always the human being. You know, I saw a funny cartoon the other day. It said, uh, it said something like, you know, what, what's the weakest nut in a car? the one holding the steering wheel, you know, Um, right? Because, you know, most times, most car accidents aren't caused by a mechanical defect. They're caused by the driver falling asleep, being inattentive, driving too fast, whatever, right? And it's the same thing in cybersecurity. You know, 
you know, corporations have spent a tremendous amount of money uh, on their firewalls, their encryption, their servers, their networks, right? Protecting them from hackers. Um, but what they don't spend as much money on and they don't spend as much time on is training their employees not to release private information, including passwords, which, by the way, you know, I, like I always say, I'm not I don't hack systems. I hack people, or at least I used to in the past. And if I can get your employee to give me their password, if I can get your employee to put in their own password and look up stuff on the system for me and tell tell me about it. All of your cyber security stuff is basically for naught, right? And I think that's one of the biggest things. And I, I go to some conferences now and speak about that, that um, corporations have to do a much better job educating and training employees so that they don't become victims of phishing and hacking and scamming. And of course, what I call rusing. A tagline to that question is, so did you guys ever use ransomware attacks then in that case? Well, we, we did not because, you know, one of the things I think is that, uh, you know, and again, I, I'm, I'm not saying that what I did was right, um, though it is a hell of a crazy fun story. Um, and I'm not proud of what <laughs> I did. I'm not proud of it. But we, the way we rationalized it, the way I rationalized it was that we were not um, stealing individuals' information. We weren't getting, the, you know, the credit card numbers of old ladies. Um, we, and we weren't doing anything like uh, ransomware or blackmail or extortion or anything like that. In our minds, you know, we were part of the capitalist system, which was this corporation's trying to get up on that corporation. And at the end of the day, you know, do we feel too bad when Goldman Sachs gets dinged or Wells Fargo gets dinged? I mean, they're dinging us all the time, right? You know, Wells Fargo was opening phony accounts in the names of all of these people, 30 accounts in your name, 30 accounts in my name, because their salespeople were trying to make bonuses and we were getting dinged with all these charges. And, you know, and that's just one example of one firm that was really behaving rep reprehensibly, right? Um, and there, you know, we all know there are many examples of firms overcharging um, and bilking and doing all kinds of shenanigans. So that was how I rationalized it is, look, most corporations are doing some of these shenanigans themselves anyway, um, you know, and so, you know, if I'm going to get information from one firm and it's going to go to another firm, it's just part of the capitalist system. If there is one thing we all need, we all need a good sleep. And for this, we need a great pillow, which brings me to today's sponsor, Sweet Z. Made with 100% plant-based down, also known as vegetable cashmere for its extreme softness and comfort, Sweet Z's patented three-layer design ensures the right amount of comfort and support for all types of sleepers and provides the three things we all need from a pillow. Comfort, support, and cooling. Despite the quality, they are a lot less expensive than other luxury pillows because they control the production process from trees to pillows. By making their pillows completely vegan, they eliminate animal cruelty and provide a better product without any guilt. Sweet Z offers a 50-day full money-back guarantee trial and free returns on all of its products. Listeners of True Crime and Authors get 15% off using code TCA15 found in the show notes. For a better and more comfortable sleep, get your Sweet Z pillow today. So they often say the most dangerous person in the room is the person that has the most knowledge. Mm. And being that you know what you know, the secrets you've uncovered, you've, you've done this with some of the top firms you know, of, of our industries, 
Why write Ruse now? Ah, great question. Well, I wrote Ruse now because the statute of limitations had expired on any potential crimes that I may or may not have committed. <laughs> so, um, be- <laughs> so because that, I was able to freely say a lot of, um, you know, basically, you know, uh, I think New Yorkers use this word bananas. You know, like so many of my stories, people read them and they go, what? Like, this is true? And the answer is, yes, it is true. It's bananas. But these crazy shenanigans and hijinks that I used to get these, you know, incredibly important secrets that in some cases were worth billions or at least portions of billions of dollars, um, you know, I I was able to write about them freely because I wasn't worried that I was going to say something that was going to get myself in trouble. So anybody get mad at you, you get any death threats behind it? Once you wrote the book, you know, it's funny. It was the exact opposite. But uh, David, I was worried about that. I was like, oh, my God, you know, is this company going to come after me? Is that going to come? Here's the craziest thing. I I, I honestly think this is the craziest thing that happened. Well, there are two crazy things that happened out of writing this book. And I'll tell you both of them. The first one is that. So I write the book. I out myself as a corporate spy. I'm worried that some company I'm going to get a letter from some lawyer. We're suing you. We can't believe, you know, instead All I got were companies begging me to spy for them. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All I got were emails saying, can we please hire you? We need your help. We're. De- I'm like, wait, don't you understand that I've outed myself as a spy? Like, I wouldn't be a very good spy if I outed myself as a spy, basically put a target on my back, and now go back into spying, Right. Um, so that was the first thing that was crazy. And then the second thing that was crazy is that, um, this guy, um, you mentioned in the beginning, Frank Abagnale, who wrote Catch Me If You Can, which, you know, everybody knows was made into this really uh, amazing movie with, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg directed it. He read Ruse and he flipped over Ruse and he wrote me this blurb, which is on the front cover of the book, basically saying that, you know, this book is crazy and hilarious. And, you know, and that was the other thing that blew me away that somebody of that, um, quality, uh, read my book and, and now has become a really, a really huge supporter of me and the story. Um, and it's, it's partly thanks to his, his kind words that it really got the attention of Hollywood and now Ruse is in development to be a TV series, which is, you know, again, beyond my wildest expectations, but Sean, the land, gave an amazing review uh, of the book. They, re- they wrote a wonderful feature on me. And, and as much as I love Shonda Rhimes, and one of my really good friends works for Shonda, it's a different production company that is producing Ruse. Unfortunately, maybe Shonda will get the next project. <laughs> well, I wouldn't sleep on that. You know, if she got friends, you know, Shonda's one of the most powerful yeah. people in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and, and for an African-American woman of all places to be where she's at, every show she's written is turned to gold. Uh, as you know, um, and uh, here's kind of a fun fact. If you never knew this, my wife and I, we were hooked on a number of her shows. For you guys who don't know all of her shows, Grey's Anatomy was her first one, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder, Bridgerton, which me and my wife is watching now. But the funny thing was, as you know, all of her shows left ABC. 
And so we was just like, how would they cancel a Shonda Rhimes show when it makes a bunch of money? So come to find out when she signed her deal in 2017 with Netflix, which was for $100 million for four years, she moved all her stuff because the biggest uh, speculation why she left among the many is Disney would re- refuse to give her an all access pass to go to Disneyland. <laughs> so at that point, she said, I'm done. I'm out. And so the writer says it's possible that ABC let rhymes the network's cash cow go because they were too cheap to comp her a one hundred and fifty four dollar ticket to Disneyland. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, that's pretty funny. Yeah, that's pretty funny. So when it comes to Rue's a TV show, are you going to play in it at all? No, no, no. My my acting careers are my acting days are in the past. I I had a great time doing it, and uh, like I said, I you know I worked with some, you know I did plays with James Gandolfini from The Sopranos. You know I, I you know I I just had a lot of really wonderful experiences, but um, I'm focused on writing now. So who would you like see portray you in the TV series? You know I get asked that question a lot, and I really don't know. I don't because you know obviously the actor playing me is going to be playing the, you know, 25 year old version of me. Um, and I don't know the, like the, who, are, who, who are the best 25 year old guys. I do know that my father is a big part of the book and, uh, you know, in my dreams. And of course this is probably a fantasy, but I would love for Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, to play, uh, my father in the, in the show. Um, I don't think Leonardo is ready to do a TV series yet, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Hollywood is, is kind of switching because um, I know you've seen this, but a lot of actors who are big screen actors that would never do TV, they're all doing TV. And some of them are saying that they think they're having a better time at it doing TV than actually doing some of the big screen shows. So never say never. Well, no, n- there's no doubt. And, and, and quite frankly, television is better than films today. Um, for this, for the very simple reason is that when we fall in love with a story, when we fall in love with characters, we go see them in a movie and two hours later, that's it. It's over. Maybe three hours if it's a long movie, right? Whereas if we watch a TV show, we get 10 hours, 12 hours in the first season. Then we get another 10, 12 hours in the second season. We get another, you know, we get to spend so much time with these characters that we love, right? And so I think the same thing is true for actors is that if you get to play a part and keep playing a part and developing a part, that's got to be a lot of fun, you know? Um, and of course, you know, most likely it's shooting in the same location for those five to seven years. So you're, you don't have to move around as much. So if you got a family, you can settle in one place as opposed to if you're, you know, you do a movie and again, your audience may not know, but if you're doing four or five movies a year, you're flying to this location, then you fly to that location, then you fly to this location. You're here for six weeks. You're there for two weeks. You're back here for, you know, it's a very difficult life for relationships and for families. And so I think TV series in a lot of ways, um, can can give some stability for for an actor that is that is pretty unusual. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think actors love doing them. When can we expect to see Ruse? Do you know yet? I don't know. We're still, you know, in the writing phase. Um, and um, it's, you know, I mean, I, I guess I'm not surprised that it's taken so long because but one of the things that has surprised me is, you know, there when when you go in and you begin to create a series you create this thing called the series bible which is you know all of the people and characters and and it's not just first season we actually talking second season third season you know even though you you don't even know if you're ever going to get that far but you they you need to understand if a show is successful what 
more seasons are going to look like, which I didn't really know coming into this that there's that, you know, it's in other words, it's it's built out that much. Um, so it takes a lot of time to kind of get all of that set. When it comes to that, uh, I know there's a lot of meat here. How long would you say that you think Rouge should be able to run as a series if it got greenlit? Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, you know, the thing that I've been grateful is a lot of times writers with the book, um, the production company will, you know, they'll buy the book and then they'll say, okay, see you, see you book writer. Bye-bye. See you later. And then they shove you out the door and then they, you know, they take your story and they do it whatever they want with it. But I've been really, um, surprised and pleased that they, um, have wanted me around and they're very interested in my stories and ideas because, you know, bruise is, uh, you know, it's a 275 page book. It's a page turner. It reads like a spy novel. It reads very quickly. But the production company is like, okay, you have stories that you didn't put in the book. I'm like, well, of course I do. You know, I was a spy for a long time. You know, I, you know, I wasn't going to write a thousand page book, but they want those other stories, right? They need those other stories because if a show runs for three, four, five, six years, they need that other content. And so they want me around because they, they want to have those other stories. Well, see, I think sometimes that's a good thing, too, because of the fact that let's just say somebody didn't read the book, right? It wouldn't entice them to go read the book. And for people that read the book, they're like, wait a minute, none of that stuff was even in the book. And so then that's when, do they put disclaimers in front of that? Because we know sometimes in these TV series, they dramatize certain things. Sometimes they make things up that goes along with that. So I think it'd be, if they say, hey, these things are really something that really happened, you know, people would be more intrigued with that, too, as well. Yeah, I, th- I think that they probably would put for Ruse something like, you know, based on a true story or based on the book Ruse by Robert Kerbeck. So the idea is that, yeah, this is based on the book and the book is true, but now it's a TV series. So we're going to we're going to play with it a little bit. So, you know, the, the premise is still all true. But, you know, there may be some some journeys that we go on that, you know, again, you know, we're not in the book and, and maybe not exactly what happened. And you know, that's just, that's just, you know, that's just TV world, movie world. Every, every true story that gets adapted into a series eventually has some sort of creative license that's taken because, you know, they're creating content. So now everything in the world now is going streaming. Uh, I remember years ago, Apple said that in the next five to 10 years, streaming will be where TV is. Well, here we are. Are you looking that it may go to an actual network or do you think it'll go to a streaming service? I think streaming. Yeah, I think streaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I mean, look, it could be a network show, but, you know, it's corporate spying and, you know, it's edgy because to get information, you know, you've got to be, you know, doing tricks and scams and ruses, um, which are funny. But, you know, they're also, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're dangerous. Right. Um, You know, there's an ethical issue. There's a danger issue. So I think it'll 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 do better in streaming. All right, guys. So that is about Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. Uh, that's his book that's currently out now. So make sure we check that out. We're going to give you all the information about how to do at the end of the show. But I kind of, before I get out of here, want to ask you about the other book that you've written, uh, which is Malibu Burning, the real story behind LA's most devastating wildfire that took place, I believe, 2019 in Malibu. So my question for you with that is, uh, do you still consider that to be the most deadliest fire when it um, in comparison to Paradise? That happened in 2018. Uh, well, um, both fires happened at the exact time, same time. They both happened in 2018. My book, uh, Malibu Burning, the book came out in 2019. Yeah, um, those fires happened at the exact same time, um, and um, there is no doubt that the the campfire in Paradise, which is Northern California, and we had 
our fire. Some people call it the Malibu fire, but the real name is the Woolsey fire, uh, which obviously burned down a significant portion of Malibu. Um, you know, there were a lot more fatalities um, in the campfire in Paradise than there were uh, in our Malibu fire. But, you know, one of the things I tell people that don't know Malibu and look, you know, at the end of the day, people died in both fires. People lost homes in both fires. You know, you can't you can't really judge a tragedy. That tragedy was worse, no doubt. Um, but for the people that lost homes in Malibu, you know, they're devastated, too. Right. Um, but one of the things that kept the 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 death count down in, in our fire was, you know, we in Malibu are very lucky because that's where I live. Uh, we're very lucky. We have an automatic safe zone. You know, we have an, what I call an automatic panic room. And what is the automatic panic room in Malibu? The Pacific Ocean. And so when when we have fires, everybody runs down, uh, drives down, walks down, stumbles down. And I saw it all that day stumbles down to the beach, to the sand, because that's the only place where you can go and be safe. Unfortunately, in paradise, most of the fatalities were people that were trapped by fire and basically were surrounded by fire. Because, you know, if you go up there, it's all forests. And so if you're driving on a road and the trees get caught, you know, on both sides of you, and that's what happened, is a lot of people, there was no panic room. There was no safe zone. I'm here to tell you if instead of the Pacific uh, uh, ocean, if we had a line of pine trees there, like they did in paradise, Malibu would have lost, um, many, many more people too. So we're just very lucky that we have that there. And that's the only real difference, um, you know, that enabled Malibu to have fewer fatalities because our fire was, you know, we had a 14 mile wide, uh, you know, fire line, like 14 miles, the fire from one end to the other was 14 miles. Think about that, right? All coming down to the beach. And I wrote the book because I fought the fire uh, with my family. We saved our house, um, but it was, um, you know, a life-threatening moment. Most of the homes on my street, 17 of 19, burned. Two-thirds of the homes in my neighborhood destroyed. A couple days after the fire, the LA Times asked me um, to write an essay about it, which I did. And then a publisher read that essay and asked me if I'd write this book. And so I wrote this book. And it was a real labor of love um, because as terrible as the fire was, you know, people died, animals died, people lost everything they ever had. Um, I know everyone thinks everyone in Malibu is rich or famous, but I'm here to tell you that there's a blue collar element to Malibu. A lot of elderly people didn't have enough insurance. They can't afford to rebuild, you know, but in, for all of the trauma and tragedy, the thing that was the most incredible thing, and I think people responded to the most in Malibu burning was People coming together and helping, you know, uh, an elderly couple in their 80s saved their home and other homes with their feet stamping out embers with their boots, right? Um, famous actors, Kevin Dillon, who played um, Johnny Drama in the HBO series Entourage. Kevin Dillon stayed behind, put his life at risk to save his home and all his neighbor's homes. Him and a couple of guys saved dozens of homes. Right. So there were all of these kind of stories, celebrity and non-celebrity um, that, um, you know, here you think of all these super rich people, but they're, you know, salt of the earth, blue collar people putting their lives at risk to save sometimes hundreds of homes. And so it was really inspirational. And, and I'm really glad I got to tell that story. And I think your, your book took a lot of those misconceptions for the audience who don't know Paradise was a fire that happened in 2018 that wiped out a whole entire town. Uh, it came really close to us because my wife had cousins and aunts that lived there. 
Um, luckily, they got out, but they lost their home. Uh, and of course, um, the Malibu fire did come up. And as you probably know, the number one biggest misconception was everybody in Malibu's rich. You know, matter of fact, I read an article just the other day where they were saying, yeah, people was escaping Malibu on yachts. You know, some people like, yeah, well, they're rich. They can rebuild. But to hear you say and write in your book, too, that. No, everybody wasn't famous. People were some people were broke or poor and they couldn't afford to rebuild. Both fires are equally as devastating. But I think sometimes when it comes down to certain areas where it's using a fluent town, you know, the same article pointed out that the average home in Malibu at the time, at the, well, at that one point was like three million dollars compared to a two hundred thousand dollar home in a paradise. What does it matter whether it's three million or two hundred thousand? That home meant something to somebody. You lost something in that fire you can never recover from. And even though there's been no books written about paradise, uh, I'm glad this book is there because the stories that you share in here really tells that story. Right. It, it wasn't all about the rich and famous people. There were actually people. And I didn't know that. I didn't know there really was. I mean, I always hear that there is a poor area in every town. But when I drive through Malibu or drive through Beverly Hills, you're like, where is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, maybe maybe poor isn't the right word, um, but maybe not as affluent as people think um, that ne everyone in Malibu is not as affluent as people think. And certainly people are not as you know, not everybody who lives in Malibu is a famous person. You know, on my street, we had a retired kindergarten teacher. We had a retired firefighter. We had a retired police officer, you know. And, you know, remember, a lot of times people buy homes in a community and a lot of people bought homes in Malibu in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s when it was not. As a matter of fact, people did not want to live. And this is something I, there's a whole chapter in Malibu Burning about the history of Malibu, which I found fascinating as I was learning about it. You know, people would buy places in Malibu. Um, nobody wanted to live up there. It was too far to commute for work. You know, of course, this is before computers and cell phones and whatever. And so, you know, nobody wanted to live up that far, that far away from the city of Los Angeles. So it was cheap. So there were a lot of people that bought homes in Malibu, like I said, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, because it was cheap, believe it or not. It was less expensive than Los Angeles. Um, and it was only when we started to get more and more celebrities buying in and, of course, cell phones and fax machines and computers and Wi-Fi that all of a sudden people could work from anywhere that it enabled you know, wealthier people to live further and further away from major business centers. Um, and so, you know, obviously, you know, Malibu has changed a lot in the last 20 years. Uh, but there was there's still, uh, you know, a, a, what I call old Malibu. And unfortunately, a lot of the homes that burned were those of old Malibu people, you know, um, your listeners, many of whom have been to Malibu and they drive down the Pacific Coast Highway and the Pacific Coast Highway is like a is like a demarcation line because the people that live on the ocean side of the Pacific Coast Highway. Yes. Celebrities. Yes. CEOs of big companies. Yes. Super wealthy. But the people that live on the land side of the Pacific Coast Highway up into the hills, into the mountains, <laughs> a lot of those are those, you know, old school, you know, uh, you know, even a little bit of the Wild West frontier types, you know, um, and that a lot of the homes that burned were those homes. And I can attest to that because from my job, uh, I go to Harbor City, which, as you know, is off of PCH. Um, and I also go to, um, well, they consider it to be Beverly Hills, but it's right across the street from the Quentin Tarantino Theater, which is the Beverly Theater there. 
And when I started going there, I'm like, okay, so these are the parts of Beverly Hills we really don't see because you don't see the big mansions there. You know, it's a large Jewish community there and there's just a lot of different people that's running through there. So it is true that I've always said that we always see on TV what they want us to see. You have to actually go explore some of these towns to actually figure out that it's not all bells and whistles everywhere you go. So I appreciate that. So when it comes to Ruse, what is it that you hope people take away from Ruse lying the American dream from Hollywood to Wall Street when they read it? Well, you know, um, again, the book is just a crazy story because, you know, you have this kid um, that, you know, I was a car salesman. I was an actor. I, you know, was a corporate spy, I'm a writer, you know, you have, I had all these different careers and, you know, interactions with famous people and interactions, you know, with, you know, the authorities and, you know, all of this crazy stuff. And what I tell people is in life, you have to take the journey you want to take. So that's part one. You know, I wanted to be an actor. I needed a survival job. I stumbled into a job as a corporate spy. It's insane. But I took the journey that I wanted to take, you know, um, so that's the first thing I tell. And the other thing is, is that it's never too late to pivot into a career that you want. So, you know, all of a sudden I was this corporate spy and I didn't want to be a corporate spy anymore, you know. And and again, this is part of the book, too, where I really reckon with the moral issues of it. And that was the moment where I'm like, you know what? And I circled back to being a writer. And, you know, here I am now. I've written a couple of books. They've done very well. I've won some national awards, you know, ones in development for a TV series. And so, you know, I tell people it's never too late to pivot. Even if you didn't follow your dream when you were a young person, it's never too late to pick it back up, you know. And so that's what I'd like people that read Ruse to come out of it. Like, wow, this guy has one crazy story. Um, and, um, and you know, he he followed his dreams you know, even though sometimes it got him into some some big trouble. Um, but <laughs> but in the end, it worked out. <laughs> Is there anything about that part of your life that you regret? No, I don't think so. Because like, you know, look, uh, again, I'm not proud of some of the things I did. But uh, again, you know, I was not, you know, I wasn't stealing from people. You know, I was... You know, and again, it, this is a rationalization. And in the book, I deal with that a lot. No, I, you know, I, I think I, t I had to take the journey that I took to become the person that I am today, you know, and I think that's that's the thing, you know, um, I never rused in my personal life. I wasn't rusing my friends. I wasn't rusing my wife. I wasn't, you know, I was, uh, you know, the ruse was very specifically in corporate America. You know, I made my peace with that, even though, like I said, you know, I, I wasn't proud of it and I'm glad I got out of it. Um, and I'm glad that I'm doing what I'm doing today. So is there anything that you would like to say to your readers out there that maybe listen to this interview? Well, that's a great question. You know, uh, you know, first off, you know, I tell people go to my website, you know, it's just my name, you know, uh, robertkerbeck.com, K-E-R-B-E-C-K. And you can, you know, you can go on there, you can buy the book, which I hope people will do. But more importantly, you can learn a lot about me. Um, you can contact me directly from my website. You can email me right from the site. You know, there's no filter. There's no assistant that's reading it. It's me that's going to respond to you. So if you have a question about spying, if you're looking to pivot into a new career and you want to be a corporate spy, email me. I will hook you up because there's plenty of work out there for corporate spies. I'm telling you, corporations <laughs> are desperate for spies and I can't do it anymore. So if you're looking, if you're looking for a job, email me. Um, you can also see the trailer for Ruse, so you can get a sense of what the TV series might look like because the trailer's up. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun stuff on the website. Well, Robert, it has truly been a fascinating time talking to you. Again, I thank you for coming on the show. I'm definitely going to finish up 
uh, reading your book. Also, I'm going to be reading Malibu Burning because I, I from what I've read so far, it is uh, definitely from somebody who's been there. And I like to read stories that are completely unbiased, which yours is. So thank you for coming on. Anytime you want to come back, let me know. You're always welcome to come back. Oh, I appreciate it. And, and you know, w- when we get close to the series, uh, I'll definitely come back. All right, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on today. Okay. okay. Bye, David. All right, guys, you heard it there. That was the incredible Robert Kerbeck. You can find all of his information in the show notes. RobertKerbeck.com is where you can go. You can order his book there. You also can find it on Amazon, and I will list his email. Plus, if you listen to this episode on my website, TrueCarmenAuthors.com, and you click on this episode, his bio will be linked to that. So once again, I thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you guys are all being safe and being good out there. And always remember, always stay humble. A little love and compassion goes a long way. And this is the podcast where two passions becomes one. I'll catch you guys in the next one. Thank you for listening to True Crime and Authors. Don't forget to rate, comment, and subscribe. Join us on social media, on Facebook at True Crime and Authors, on Twitter at Authors True, on YouTube and TikTok at True Crime and Authors, and email at truecrimeandauthors at gmail.com. Cover art and logo designed by Dazzling underscore Ray from Fiverr. Sound mixing and editing by David McClam. Intro script by Sophie Wilde from Fiverr. And I'm the voice guy, your imaging guy from Fiverr. See you next time on True Crime and Authors. Authors.